Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for Frontlines, tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Ephraim Smith on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, welcome to another edition of Candid Conversations. I'm Todd Wilson, the founder of Exponential. Thrilled to have you today. My co-host, Ephraim Smith. Ephraim from the West Coast. Uh, Good to see you today. Good to see you again. You know, we were here last week and I hosted with Grant. And so it's been a few weeks since we hosted together. So I, I genuinely miss you my dear brother. Well, let let me just call you out, Ephraim, and say, right before this Zoom, I was on another Zoom with Grant Skelton, and and you were supposed to be on that call also. And I was actually telling Grant what a great job you do, and that in reality, Grant Grant and you ought to be the co-hosts of this. There's no reason for me to even need to be on that you guys ought to do it, so... No, man. I mean, hey, I think there's something about this this triad of Todd Ephraim and Grant. So, uh, you know, and, you know, we're going to get some sisters on, too. So I know some people are like, are there going to be any sisters, any any women guests? I'm like, yes, you just got to keep watching it. And there's going to be people names you just couldn't imagine. And the person we have today, Todd Wilson. Ah, ah. Oh, can I introduce him yet or do we Please do. Him? Let's go. Okay. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, <laughs> millions of people around the world. Let me introduce you to the Reverend Doctor, Senior Pastor of Transformation Church. He was a BYU Cougar, defensive back. Then he went to the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts. When he hits you, you feel it from the top of your head to your big toe. That's the kind of impact he had in the secondary. And there's Twitter videos to back up what I'm saying. He is the senior pastor, as I said, of Transformation Church right outside Charlotte, North Carolina, technically in South Carolina. He is the author of the High Definition Leader, my brother, my friend, Derwin Gray. Ah, man, bro. Let me, hey, let me tell you something, E, like, man, I almost felt like just running through the window and just tackling just somebody. But then I remembered that my 49-year-old body don't react to physicality the way it once did. Man, I know you, you, uh, we're going to get to the topic in a second. I know that you, you put out hits playing football. Do you, do you have a story in the NFL of like, 
you actually took a hit like you yeah. you you took a like because i've seen some videos of you putting out some big hits because just, just give us one quick story of like a hit you had to absorb yeah, so 1993, my rookie year with the Colts, I was a fourth-round pick. Ray Buchanan was a third-round pick. Both of us played defensive back. We're high draft picks. We're hot shots. And, and we're watching film because we're going to go play the Seattle Seahawks. And we had never played in the NFL game before. And we were just talking about all the things that we were going to do. We were going to get in the game and just ball out. Well, when I got in the game, those grown men for the Seattle Seahawks were so big and so fast, it was paralyzing. It was not college anymore. And I'll never forget, it was a running back by the name of Reuben Mays. He busted up the hole at six foot, 235 pounds, 4'4", and he moved past me so fast, it was a blur. And by the time I started to chase him, when I got close to him, a big old tight end just, bam, just hit me. And the next thing I knew is I was looking up at the top of the old Seattle kingdom and the veterans on the team were like, welcome to the NFL rookie. And uh, it's a lot like church planting. You talk about all the stuff you're going to do. And if I was a pastor, I would have did this and you get there and you just like, boom. So I'll never forget that humbling experience to go, man, I'm playing against some grown men. And, uh, you know, that's the beauty of a highlight film is I only put the highlights on the Internet. <laughs> I don't put when I get knocked out. You know, it's like pastors. We, you know, hey, we had record attendance today, but we don't put the other stuff on Twitter. Yes. Well, so, man, Derwin, one, one more thing before we get started here. Just uh, behind you on the shelves so we can get to know you a little bit better. Um, Obviously, the helmets and the big hit that you're telling us you took. So we get the helmets across the top. I've never seen someone who keeps their books horizontal rather than vertical on their bookshelves. So I'm just curious as we get started here, what, give us the backstory of the horizontal books on your bookshelf. The backstory is this, is on our staff at Transformation Church, we have one of our executive female leaders who's also a interior designer. And she was like, this is what you need to do. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so that's the story behind it. <laughs> all right. And all of those books that are turned backwards so we can't see them. Those are the ones we later want to know what those are too. The secret books that are turned around back there that we can't yeah, see. Yeah. So I, I don't prefer them to be turned around, but my interior designer said that's stylistic. So I'm probably going to turn them around because there's method to my madness. I know where all my books are. And so I'm going to dabble with it a little bit, but uh, uh, I love to read, man. I love to read. I love to read. All right. Well, we're really thrilled that you're on today, Derwin. Um, the topic today is racism. Um, what we're trying to do in the candid conversation series that we're doing here every week is words matter. Um, the definitions of words matter. So we want to make sure we're helping equip people with it, not to tell them what a definition ought to be, but to help equip them to internalize their own definition. I've been really looking forward to today, even more than some of the other ones, especially with you and Ephraim both being on. Um, one of the things that I'm going to give context to my questions today is this. Um, I'm older than both of you, growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, 
my definition of racism, the definition that I grew up with, it seems to be shifted or different now with a younger generation. And so I'm, I'm really been looking forward to hearing from both of you as African-American leaders, you know, just the definition part of this. So if we could start with this, many people think of the definition of racism differently. Um, what, what is your definition of the term or how would you describe the definition of racism? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I think that's such an important question is the way I would define racism is this. Racism is a failure to love your neighbor as yourself because you have deemed that their being is less than your being and your group. So I want to locate racism within uh, the Hebrew and early Christian tradition of love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so racism is a failure to love my neighbor as I love myself because I deem my group greater than another group. Now, there is the personal dynamic, individual racism, like a person, quote unquote, deems another group less than individually. But then I think where we're struggling, particularly within majority culture evangelicalism, is understanding the systemic structure of saying, my group is better than your group. And let's make sure that we locate this within uh, understanding of theology, right? Because the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, he talks about principalities. He talks about powers. He talks about the demonic realm. So as believers, we believe total depravity not only affects individuals, but also the systems and structures that individuals are a part of. So for example, after World War II, uh, black GIs came back and they didn't participate in government loans. They didn't participate in uh, uh, some of the Benefits, or when you look at housing or being able to vote and those various things. And even to today, when you look at mass incarceration, when you look at uh, all those types of things, and, and, and then frankly, let's look at it even within the local church structure. For example, it is harder for minorities to get church plant money than non-minorities. Uh, for example, uh, in my theological studies, I've only had maybe, I had one female African-American professor, maybe two African-American professors. And, and so I think it's important for us to understand the personal, but also to understand the systemic. And then let me go to a third place. And this is what I'm most concerned about, particularly for Christians is the person who doesn't understand that their racists are failing to love their neighbor as they love themselves because they don't wear a white hood or a swastika tattoo. That it's more than just, well, I'm against that. Um, as believers, we're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And a New Testament gospel understanding of reconciliation is both vertical and horizontal. 
only in a Western context can we get away with saying, well, I'm reconciled to God, but I don't have to care about my neighbor. Uh, that, you know, that, that's like saying a square circle. And, and so reconciliation demands vertical connection to God and horizontal connection to each other as a response to God's grace. So I want to locate racism in the context of loving my neighbor as I love myself. And if I could add one more thing, is that cool? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so uh, the term race, as in human race, is a 16th century uh, child of the Enlightenment. Um, in Jesus' day, what determined your ethnicity was your religious practices and your worldview. So case in point, um, you could be from Northern Africa, but be considered Greek or Roman because your worldview was after Alexander the Great. You could be considered Jewish and be from Ethiopia because of your religious practices. And so even the name Christian, the first time it's used is in Acts 11, I think about verse 26 or so. Uh, they were called Christians at Antioch because you had former Jewish people, this didn't matter the color of their skin, Gentiles, that didn't matter the color of skin, but they were called a new ethnicity because they followed Yeshua HaMashiach, Christ the Messiah. And so a hierarchical race system is a European enlightenment invention of domination, which led to colonization. And so it's really important for us to understand that there's one race, the human race, comprised of different ethnicities, which is your geographical location, which is um, your language, which is your culture. And God made a promise, Yahweh made a promise to Abraham. I'm gonna give you a family that's made up of all the families. And Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, comes to fulfill that promise through his life, his death, and resurrection. And so we have a redeemed, forgiven, spirit-sealed family made up of all the other families on earth. And that has to be our starting point. That has to be our starting point of loving my neighbors. I love myself because if we're the body of Christ, Todd, your whiteness my blackness, so to, so, so to speak, are secondary to our in Christness, and we're to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider the other better than themselves. Imagine if we as the church operated in that capacity. Yeah, that's good. Now, as you unpack uh, understanding what racism is in different levels from an, from an individual standpoint and a systemic standpoint, you know, it's, it's important because I point people back to understanding racism in that way actually helps you understand biblically sin because yeah. some people just limit sin to being housed in the soul of a person. So, so I repent of my sins. And so then repentance and sin is just seen from a deeply individualistic standpoint, where we also see in scripture that sin is systemic, it's corporate, the Tower of Babel, 
Egypt, you know, uh, Babylon, Assyria, the Roman Rome. Empire. And so, so sin is also systemic. And there's times when we see God uh, desirous of a whole nation to repent yeah. or holding, holding a, a larger group of people responsible. So to understand racism from an individualistic and a systemic standpoint is to also have a, a, a more biblical, authentic understanding of sin. And, 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 and it, is, it is more robust. And what I mean by, by that, so for example, let's, let's say, Todd, you love the Lord, you love your brothers and sisters of different ethnicity with oneness, but let's say you work at a bank and you go into the bank and you give out loans, but there are policies within that bank that says, well, these certain groups of people who are non-white can only live behind this red line. And if you don't do that, you get fired. So you can be a good Christian, but be in a corrupt system. And I think that's where God calls us as believers that we're not only called to save souls, we're called to permeate those systems and structures we're in with the good news with the gospel. And so I think a lot of times it's not enough to say, well, I'm not racist. It's like, how do I become an ambassador? How do I become anti-racist because of the gospel? Yeah. So, uh, Darren, as, as we unpack what racism is, are there ways in which you are witnessing, experiencing racism being used, being defined in a way that's unhealthy, that doesn't point people to reconciliation and righteousness, but, but points them to something else that, yeah. that could compromise our, our Christian witness? Are, are there unhelpful uses of, of the term racism? Yeah. You, you, you know, you know uh, Ephraim, one of the things that I'm concerned about in this zygos, this, this zygos is a German word for the spirit of the age. Um, eight minutes and 46 seconds, the time in which the officer's knee was on George Floyd's neck combined with COVID made majority culture people wake up. And we see a lot of people awake. I just wanna make sure that we're awake to redemptive justice. Because justice without redemption is vengeance, and the oppressed becomes the oppressor. At Jesus' table, there's enough room for the Pharisee, the Sadducee, and the woman caught in adultery. And so we have to make sure, like redemption is making things new, not simply punishment. And so what I'm seeing is almost this overreaction to uh, we're going to get you back. We're, we're going to punish you versus saying, no, no, there's healing for you as well. There's, yeah. there's, there's grace for you as well. Grace is not passive. Grace is transformative. Grace says there's enough seats at the table. And I think what's happening in our cultural moment, that there is a shift that's taking place. And I do think, and I'll speak in a Christian context, I do think there are majority culture Christians sitting in the pews and probably preaching from the pulpits as well is, am I going to lose my seat at the table? And this is what I would say. 
Uh, speaking on behalf of the black church, which you know much better than I do, Ephraim, but the black church has shown so much grace, so much forgiveness over and over and over. And I just believe that God's people are going to say, there's enough room at Papa's table for everybody to eat. Everybody can eat. We don't have to be scarce because our God is generous. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to direct this to both of you guys just to help educate me and clarify for me. Uh, I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit what we've been talking about, but clarify. Um, I want to make the distinction for a minute, the difference between racism and then the systemic racism parts that you're talking about, Derwin. And if I go back to the definition that you used, uh, which is similar to a lot of the dictionary thing, you know, you've got the love part, but then there's one group feeling they're superior to another group part of it, which that's the definition I grew up with of, of where one group thinks they're superior to another group kind of thing. If I now talk this, let's take the red line kinds of issues or things that are systemically a problem. Talk a little bit of what's hard for me as a, as a white person is I, I can wrap my hands around the definition of racism and the superiority part and an attitude of superiority. Um, it's a little harder the love your na- you know the love your neighbor part because if I'm really honest, there's lots of ways I don't love my neighbor the way I ought to, and you know maybe there's a race part to it. I probably wouldn't have called that the piece, but where I get more confused is on the systemic piece then. If I'm using the definition of racism is I feel superior as a white person to someone of color. Now I jump over to the things like the red line laws. It's very easy for me to look back 20, 30 years and say, oh yeah, red line thing, clear example, that's bad, that's da da. Um, Using your bank example though, you could have, is it possible that you've got all kinds of well-intentioned people who are not actually racist? They don't think there's a superiority thing, but now there's, talk a little bit about how you have a system within an area where you actually have people who aren't racist, but there's a system that has a systemic racist bias. I don't know if I'm, I'm asking more for clarity on that. And so I, I think the first place we start is this is, is every letter that Paul wrote was written to multi-ethnic churches so that they could be the people of, of God. So, so let's locate this first and foremost, that if God's house does not have oneness, then those who don't belong to him aren't going to have that. So it has to begin within the local church of what this oneness and this beauty looks like to love each other as though we're truly in Christ, equally clothed in Christ. Then what I would say that as we scatter into the world as missionaries, we have to be salt and light, right? That's, that's what the Beatitudes are about, is that the types of people that God changes the world with 
are the salt and light people, the beatitude people, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemakers. So how do we go into the world scattered as ambassadors of reconciliation to say, what are policies? What, 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 what are systems and structures that God has called me into? So for a great example would be the movie Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is a believer and he said, okay, I'm going to scatter into the justice system and fight injustice. You know, and racism and prejudice is a di different thing. Racism deals more with the power of a group to impose upon another. So for example, for a Jewish person in Jesus's day, there wasn't much that they could do for Rome as far as racism. Now you could be prejudiced, you could be prejudiced, like black people, every, like all of us can have the sin of prejudicenesses, but the power of racism deals more with cultural force and cultural weight. But I think Brian Stevenson is a great example of, okay, here's an unjust, mass incarceration problem. So I'm going to start an initiative to get men and women off of death row who are innocent. Yeah. And, and to, uh, to add along with what uh, Pastor Derwin has said, one of the ways you can be complicit or participate and not have racism in your heart is this example. So uh, uh, Derwin brought up housing. So let's look at housing for a minute. So in the 1960s and 70s, um, banks and realtors in a systemic racialized way would go into communities and scare white families into moving out of cities into newly developed suburbs by basically saying to them, um, there are black people that are about to move into this neighborhood and that's going to bring crime. That's going to bring danger. You're not going to be able to leave your doors unlocked. You're not going to be able to, you know, have your windows open at night. And so I can help you sell your house now before they move in here and the price on your house goes down. So now that's systemic racism. Now, fast forward to today. There are people that are living in suburbs, they could be white, and they, and maybe there's, some, there's a, a, a bill in their community that's going to cause, call for mixed income housing. And they go, I don't want that in my community. They're, they may not be saying that because they're racist, but because they don't know the history and they don't understand the ways in which suburbs were formed and why there are so many communities that are predominantly white and predominantly upper class and, uh, and that the home ownership and, uh, is, is better on those. And so they look at the inner city and they don't know the history of how under-resourced inner city communities became the way they are. They just think, well, maybe they're that way because they don't have the values that we have in our community. Maybe they're that way because they don't work as hard as the people in our community. So you can have a narrative in your mind. You can have some thoughts about a people group and not be racist, but because you don't know the history and you don't even know how your community came to be what it is. It's just always been what it is to you. 
So hopefully that's an example of how you can be in the, um, in, in the, in the air, the ecosystem of systemic racism and not be a racist yourself. Well, and, and, and I think that's why understanding, like you're saying, the narrative, right? So there's a, there's a narrative, well, you know, black men are violent and black men are this. And, and I want everybody to hear the heart of this because we're in a moment where this is so important because you cannot see a person above the way you imagine them. And oftentimes the most dangerous place for minority men, black men to be is in a white person's mind of what they think that they are. And so when you look at a history of violence in America, it, it, it wasn't black men. Like we got captured and brought here by violence. And so keep, keep that in mind that at one time, Birmingham, Alabama was called Bombingham. And I know there's some pe- people saying, well, Derwin, why do, you, why do you have to look at history? The same way Jesus would talk about Israel's history. The gospel makes no sense if we don't understand the exodus and slavery and freedom from slavery, because that's the salvation narrative. But if we don't know history, we're going to be limited in our understanding of the present reality. And also what I want to encourage my white brothers and sisters with is this, your identity is in Jesus Christ alone, not, not the accomplishments of the United States of America. The United States of America belongs to all of us, but our identity belongs to Jesus Christ alone. So therefore, we can have a healthy, critical eye of the past without feeling like it's a personal attack on me. And half of my family's white. I mean, I did a DNA test uh, a few years ago because my mom is as light-skinned as you are, Todd. And I was like, what's what's really going on? Man, I'm like almost 25% European, right? Like, And my wife is white. And so the issue is this. We can look critically back through the lenses of the gospel to move forward, all of us as God's people. And if we as God's people don't love each other with the love of Christ and form the community of Christ, we find ourselves in the situation like we are in the United States of America. Like literally, our nation is burning down. In my 49 years of life, I've never seen this much dysfunction. You've got radicalism on the left. you got radical crazyism on the right. And sadly, the church is getting carried away by both of those streams instead of staying in the current of Christ and his kingdom. So if we, using that, Derwin, if we, let's turn to the church's role in combating racism. But as we get into that, what, you know, whether it's a problem statement, like what, what is it we're trying to solve? Like if, if, if five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we say, wow, what a season that was we solved the problem. Like, what is it that as we turn to the church's role in combating that and solving problems right now, what are the problems we're solving or problem that we're solving? Yeah, so, so, so we know that the great enemy is sin and death. 
Jesus was victorious over sin and death and all of its multitudes of expression. So what we're talking about is a sanctification problem. For too long, we as the church have put justice, uh, redemptive justice in a corner. It's been an additive. We've, we've been very individualistic in our gospel versus understanding that, 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 no, God is forming a family of oneness. And when you see what this family looks like, it looks like this. You will know my disciples because they love one another. That love is patient. Love is kind. That the issue we're solving is a sanctification discipleship issue. And I shared this with Dave Ferguson years ago, and I said this to him. Um, our sanctification at Transformation Church is occurring faster and more deeper because we have so many different people. We have, we have country white folks. We've got sophisticated white folks. We've got brothers with dreads. We've got Asian women, East Asian, uh, Indian Asian, people of different social economic strata. So when we meet together, it's like a multifaceted diamond. And here's what's beautiful. I become a better version of me because of your difference and you become a better version of you because of your difference. It's the difference that makes us different for the better. And once again, this is rooted in New Testament ecclesiology. Every single letter that Paul wrote was to teach Jews and Gentiles how to be the new people of God for the glory of God and the mission of God on planet Earth. You know, uh, there's a question here in our chat that is actually intertwined in a question I was going to ask you. And the question is this, how can you enter an unjust system without being contaminated by the injustice? Yeah. You know, that is a beautiful question and I love the thoughtfulness of it. And I just believe that as long as the tomb is empty and it is, we're more than conquerors in him who loved us. So therefore, we put on the full armor of God. We put on the discernment of, of God. This is deep discipleship to be an ambassador of reconciliation where we find ourselves. And I want more believers asking that type of question. For the most part, we do fairly well at the evangelism part. Hey, hey, you know what? I, I, I want to share Christ. And, and you come to faith. But then the people of faith have obedience to the faith to become salt and light. And you work within that system to purify it, but also understanding that there's a new heavens and a new earth that's coming. And we're at, we're actually functioning as kind of like um, uh, servers at a restaurant saying, here's an appetizer to what's going to come. But for most Christians, we're not servers, we're consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to uh, back up here because we had a question that came in about um, policies. Maybe, maybe we can take this one together, Derwin. It says, uh, when we were talking about whether it was redlining or banking or housing, who, who sets the redlining policies, banking policies, policing policies? And if it is legislative or judicial, is there a political component to racism policy? You know, that is like a uh, CNN question, but I think we might be able to take it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know, um, so 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 this is this is how I will answer that. Um, and I'm not a politician. Um, I will say this: that we're not the party of the elephant. We're not the party of the donkey. We're the party of the lamb which means we're going to have a prophetic witness to both the elephant and the donkey. And because we're citizens of heaven, that should make us great citizens of earth. And so we should vote, but understanding that neither party is going to live up to the kingdom of God. I'm just, I'm just looking for a party that says life in the womb matters. And so does life uh, in cages at the border separated from their parents. I'm looking for a party that where integrity matters, that we want to make integrity great again. I'm looking for a party that gives religious freedom and religious expression. And man, I tell you what, like my, my Christian friends, like in Norway, they go, it's criminal that you guys don't have universal health care. Like they, their, their minds are blown. Like, like our health care is great. Like it comes out of our taxes, but it's great. Like, how do y'all do that as Americans? And so it's important for us to understand that uh, there are differences of expressions of how we can live, live it out. And our policies are important, but I don't think that they're to the degree that some Christians to where they become partisan politicians on the side, whether to the left or to the right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a new phenomenon of this whole ordeal of which which political party is is the racist one and which one is the the non-racist one which political party is the one christian should go to and which party is the one that christian should stay away from i mean during the civil rights movement i mean if you if you read the writings of dr martin luther king jr listen to his speeches i mean both political parties were were um the the focus of his attention um, and, you know, and even though we try to go back and say, well, you know, the party of Lincoln is the one. Well, again, <laughs> that I could I could make a case to you politically that I grew up in a city where Democrats were in charge my whole life. So growing up in Minneapolis, the school board was Democrat. The mayor was Democrat. The, the dog catcher was Democrat. <laughs> you know, it's like you couldn't you, you couldn't get into political power in the city of Minneapolis to this day and not be a Democrat. And so you could blame nothing wrong on Republicans. Yeah. in that city. So I've seen that. And I've also seen communities where you go, hey, Republicans are in charge here and you can't blame anybody else on what's going on here. Uh, you're, you're so right, Derwin. We've got to figure out a way. I love what you said earlier about, um, you know, what does it mean to truly find our identity in Christ, to find our identity in being citizens of uh, of the kingdom of God, being ambassadors of reconciliation, and not being held captive to any of the systems and structures. I, I love living in America. I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. I, I absolutely, I love catfish, collard greens, macaroni, cheese, and cornbread too much to live anyplace else. <laughs> and at the same time, when we stand before God, we're not going to run down what a great American we were. While we were while we were down here, I think we're going to have to stand before God and we're going to be held to account for how great a citizen of the kingdom of God we were. Well, and, and being citizens of the kingdom of God 
moves us to bless the city, whether it's left or right. So, for example, in Charlotte, uh, we had a gentleman who was shot and killed by a black police officer who actually used to be a part of our church. And at that moment, there was so much heightened awareness with Michael Brown and so much other stuff. And so even before that shooting took place, Chief Kerr Putney and I had already been meeting about strategies behind the scenes to bring the community together. And so I've had him at Transformation Church, along with a young black man who marched in some of the protests. I've had... um, Uh, sheriffs and judges and all types of people to have conversations. And, and we have to understand, particularly with police shooting and black men, there's a historical narrative that requires understanding that requires patience. And so we have to be friends with people in power, but never lose our prophetic edge, but also as the church, um, for example, I'm, I'm going to take a moment to share some of the things that we're, we're doing. Like, because prison matters, we have prison churches. Uh, we have a guy on our church staff who was in prison for mur- murder. He, he was in a drug rage, killed a guy, and he was leading our church ca- campuses. He's on staff with us now. We feed about 400 families per week. Um, we buy computers for the school. One day we want to open up a health health clinic. So what can we do also to partner along with procedures and policies? So what I'm saying is we need deeper and more beautiful discipleship. If I can just rant for a moment and and please hear my heart in this, we don't need any more self-help TED Talk language type sermons. People need to come in contact with the living God of the universe and the power and presence of Jesus Christ to set us ablaze that we see ourselves not as consumers, but as Hebrews 3.14 says, participants in Christ. We're called by his grace, his spirit, to reproduce the ministry and mission of Jesus. We've got to be equippers because it's too dark, man. Like, like, I don't care how many campuses there are. Like, have you noticed that the media is not interviewing the people that we go to church plants to hear or, or the conferences to hear speak? Like, how many campuses do you have? The world don't care about our campuses. What they want to know is, how is your Jesus making the world different other than you said someone raised their hands at church and you marked it off? How are they serving in schools? What about the mental health? Like, you can be pro-police and pro-police reform. I I just think there's so much more that we as God's people can tap into by the power of the Spirit. I believe that. I think this is when the church says amen, Todd. (laughs) I think that's the part where the church says amen, Todd. But I know I got to hand it over to you, Todd. No, I just was going to, Derwin, you've mentioned disciple making several times now. And I want to clarify, are you, are you saying that we have a racism problem that can only be solved by better disciple making as the solution? Yes. Or are you saying, and or are you saying 
we have a disciple making problem that as one of its one of its outcomes then is that it causes a racism problem like and i know they're related but any any sin for a believer is a sanctification issue and so when we look at galatians chapter 2 beautiful thing happening in antioch peter is eaten with the gentiles the party of james shows up and the scripture says that Peter drew back, that even Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, drew back as well. And what does Paul do? Paul disciples him. Paul says, what you're doing is out of step with the gospel. Gospel is not just a creed. Gospel is a life in Christ. And then Paul goes into this beautiful picture of here's why I'm not a Jewish nationalist anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The world's Messiah, though I live in his body, it's by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying, I have been redeemed from racism. I can't do that anymore, Peter, and I want you to join me. Now, here's the interesting thing. Peter had already experienced Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter had a moment like, God, I can't believe that I'm in a Gentile's house and I'll never call them unclean because you know how we Jews think about them. Now I see that God shows no favoritism. But then what happens to Peter? He stops walking in the spirit and he lets people-pleasing and peer pressure move him back into his old ways. So this is a sanctification issue. Sanctification or holiness is God's grace in us by faith. We're becoming more and more like Jesus, and racism and prejudice is one of those sins that he eradicates. But if we stop walking in the Spirit, we'll be right there. And how, if we... If we look for, given that the sanctification process is at different places with different people, so if we're talking about how individual Christians um, can engage this conversation in a helpful, thoughtful, redeeming way, what, how do we amidst all the division that's out there right now? I mean, we're fighting over everything, and we're in this really bad political season right now, and like, so how does the average Christian recognizing they're all over the map in the sanctification process. Like, how do you engage this in an honoring way? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing, Todd, is uh, we have to stop being discipled by Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity. We need to turn off the late-night uh, cable news, and we really need to spend some time with Jesus, spend some time in the Gospels, spend some time in Acts, spend some time in Paul's le- le- letters. And just whenever you see the word Jew or Gentile, just circle that. Because one of the pushbacks that I still get, Todd, is, is people go, why do you talk about race so much? And I say, well, let's just read Acts chapter 6. And all of a sudden, Acts chapter 6, you see all of these different diaspora Jews from Cyprus and parts of Africa. In in chapter six, there's six different uh, uh, mentionings of different ethnicities. So here's the problem. We have a sin problem that affects people that causes us to not love ourselves. So therefore, Jesus came in a Jewish body, not in a Greek body, 
a Jewish body for a reason. And so we're not to be color blind, but to be color blessed. And so get alone with Jesus, begin to read and, and study, like grab my book, grab Ephraim's book. There's so many more books now that we can read and immerse ourselves and then make a commitment to this. I'm going to treat every human being like Jesus Christ died for them because he did. Like, I don't have to agree with you to love you. Uh, we, I, I swear we got more questions in the chat this episode than I think we've ever had. And some of them you've already uh, touched on. Uh, but let me, um, some people, because uh, of the, th this important word you're giving us, about going to God's word. Uh, some are asking us about commentaries that yeah. you would suggest, especially do you have some go-to Bible commentaries that are written by African-American authors or authors yeah. of color that you would suggest? Yeah, so the first one is uh, my mentor from afar, Dr. Tony Evans has a, uh, he has a wonderful study Bible as well as a commentary. Um, it is phenomenal. His book, Oneness Embraced, is phenomenal. I'm thankful for Dr. Evans. Another commentary, and this gentleman is not uh, 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 black. He's white. His name is R.J. Utley, and he has a free commentary online, R.J. Utley Commentary. It is phenomenal. And what I love about him is his emphasis also is in it area of my doctoral work, which is first century, second temple Jewish understanding. And then thirdly, what I would say is anything that you can read by N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright is British and he's white, but he gets it. Like he really, really gets it. Uh, but there are so many incredible uh, um, authors and scholars, but uh, Tony Evans, R.J. Utley, N.T. Wright are like my go-to guys. But then you've got like Dr. Corey Edwards, who comes from more of a sociological perspective. Uh, Ephraim, you, you may have some examples as well, but those are the top three that have shaped me along with Scott McKnight. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Willie J. Jennings' commentary on uh, Acts is is incredible um i'm actually preaching a sermon series on acts right now and using his commentary as one of my resources uh as i as i preach that series um another african-american uh dr dennis edwards mm -hmm. he's got a commentary on first peter that that uh you you should get your hands on uh brenda salter mcneil's book a credible witness is sort of like a commentary wow. on the Gospel of John, <laughs> at least a deep dive into John 4. And her new book, uh, Becoming Brave, in some ways is a commentary on the book of Esther. So uh, when, you, when you read Brenda Salter McNeil, you, you, get, you get Bible commentary. It's like, it's like a, an and one. You know, you got file, you got the shot, and you got the file. So uh, yes, so th those are some that, that I would... Um, that I, that I would suggest. What do, you, what do you think, Todd? I know we're getting ready to wind down here. Should we stay in the chat or do you got a, a couple Let's other things? Let's stay in the chat for one or two more. Okay. We had uh, quite a few of them, so go ahead. Um, you talked about this a little bit, but we had one specific question about uh, the racial unrest 
that took place a couple of years ago in the Charlotte area. Uh, so this question says, when the city of Charlotte had racial unrest a couple of years ago from the shooting of an unarmed black man, you were interviewed on local news and other platforms to speak into the situation. Uh, would you talk a little bit about what you said and how can pastors speak about what's going on without indicting all police officers and have compassion for the pain in black communities. I think you already kind of went this direction, but is there any any more you want to say about that? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is uh, relationship is currency. And before there was ever any uh, police shootings or those types of things, I had a relationship with the chief of police and had already built that relationship. And and so um, the thing that I said is this, is when there is a shooting of an unarmed black man that has a historical precedence and reference, um, and it's important for majority culture people to understand that this is not rare, this is not surprising. In 1992, when Rodney King was videotaped, we didn't have cell phones back then. A lot of us in the black community said, finally, people will believe us. We have to begin to hurt for our brothers and sisters who don't look like us, even though it doesn't affect us. And so what I teach at Transformation Church is this, is when I begin to love and care about someone or something that does not affect me, the capacity of my heart expands to love, which makes me better. It makes me more compassionate. And so in essence, and to go back to the shooting that took place in Charlotte, uh, the officer did attend our church for a time and the other, and, and the black man he did shoot did have a weapon. So In that case, he did have a weapon. But in many cases, that has not been the case. And so Chief Putney and I have this relationship that he understands there are some bad police officers that need to go. But there are a lot of great police officers. Ephraim, there are a lot of great preachers, but there are some prosperity uh, there's there's some pre- preachers that 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 need to go. So just like in every field, there's some difficulties, but also we have to uproot and understand that there's a system of protection. Uh, police are called to protect and to serve. It is a very very difficult job, but the higher the responsibility the greater your preparation has to be. And so a part of police reform is better training, more psych evaluations. And yes, is there responsibility for the criminal? Yes, a thousand times, yes. But as a pastor, I'm called to act differently than the congregation. So there's greater responsibility for me. And so I want our policemen to know we love them. That's why uh, for the Indianland Police Department, we bought them a gym. Uh, The city of Charlotte gave us an award for our church. And so we can be pro-police and pro-police reform. We can be pro-protest and pro-peaceful protest. Um, I don't think there has to be this bifurcation that love is multifaceted. But I do want pastors to look at ways 
Yeah, like how how can we build relationship so when something does blow up, we can have civil conversation because most of our people are getting their cultural critique from partisan cable news stations. Yeah, such a great point about the peaceful protest because sometimes our, our some of our brothers and sisters don't understand. You and your wife and your family wouldn't be able to live in South Carolina where you live if it wasn't for peaceful protests. You oh, really? and I wouldn't be able to pastor multiracial churches if it wasn't for peaceful pro, we, we might not be on this webinar having this conversation with our dear brother Todd if it wasn't for peaceful protests. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. as we wind down, I want to thank both you guys. I want to encourage people to check out, if you haven't already, Derwin's book, The HD Leader, um, talks about some of the things we're talking about here. And uh, are, are there any other resources that you would point out that you want to point toward, Derwin? Yeah. Um, Ephraim has a phenomenal book on the topic. Uh, there's a book called The Color of Compromise by Jameer Tisby, uh, a wonderful scholar out of Wheat named Esau McCauley's just written a book called uh, uh, Reading in Black, and he's a phenomenal New Testament sc- scholar. More than ever, there are tons of resources that are available. Hmm. I want to, since both of you are part of it, I want to highlight that this fall we're doing over 100 roundtables on racial conversations throughout the United States. Uh, I think multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. Both Derwin and Ephraim are speakers for that. We've got uh, probably over 30 different leaders across the country uh, doing high quality TED Talks that will be played at these roundtables. And really what we're trying to do is just like this conversation today, we're trying to get people into healthy conversations, um, uh, and which is so difficult these days with divisiveness on words and politics and everything else. So we're trying to create as safe of a place as possible for having difficult conversations. And I want to thank both of you guys for being part of that and putting content together to, to equip those, those things. So, uh, Absolutely. Hey, Todd, before I go, I just want to thank you and Ephraim, because you guys invited me into the exponential community way back in 2008. And Ephraim, I'm a huge fan. Todd, I appreciate uh, your vision, your strategy, because exponential is making an exponential impact. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. We appreciate uh, everything you're leading the way in there, Derwin. Ephraim, once again, thank you. I'll look forward to our next time together. Yes. And so for those of you watching, tell your friends, tell your family members, tell people that you don't like that need the Holy Spirit to do something in their life to check out Candid Conversations Thursdays. All right. 11 a.m. on the West Coast, 2 p.m. on the East Coast. Middle of the country, figure it out. All right. It was good being with you. God bless. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.